Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We are wrapping up a series called The Blessing over the last few weeks. We have taken time to look into God's Word at blessings that He has for His children. And by the way, many of you may have been on the road traveling last weekend or with family or quarantined or I know a lot of that's going on. But how about Pastor Matt and the job he did last weekend? That was just phenomenal. <laughs> Wish I could say I taught him everything he knows, but that's not true. So um, today's sermon is going to be a little bit of an outlier from the rest of the series because the rest of the series we would take a, a blessing. And today, I think it's important to take a look at a spiritual insight as to what goes on to the struggles in our life. I would assume everyone in here has heard the phrase, like father, like son, right? So my father passed away 17 years ago. He was age 56 when he passed away from cancer. I had been out of the home, I don't know, six or seven years or so. And when I think about my dad at the height of his career, kind of the pinnacle of his life and kind of the heyday, if you will, I, I think about him, my first kind of memory of him is in his late 40s. I'm 46, and I told Jerry just the other day, I said, you know, I can't look in the mirror without seeing my dad. I just see resemblances and shades of my dad, like father, like son. And so sometimes that has to do with like our physical appearance. It's more than just looks, though. It, it can also be behavior. If my father had a behavior, many times the son may, may take on that behavior as he ages in life. Or a mother may have a behavior and, and the children or the daughter may begin to, to act like that, right? They have the same behavior. Many times that's good. Like children will take on their parents' work ethic. They may take on their parents' career path. My dad was a civil engineer. My brother is a civil engineer. I'm not the black sheep of the family. I'm the white sheep of the family. Amen. You know? So sometimes you take on your parents' people skills and ability to relate to people. That's not always good. Sometimes there's bad behaviors that our parents may have that we take on. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of statistics that have gone into this of how a person who has been physically and emotionally abused as a child, far too many times that person has a high probability of becoming an abuser as they become an adult. There's a lot of studies, particularly surrounding non-biological children, like stepkids or even adopted children and how certain things contribute to their behavior. Sometimes the behavior is atmosphere, meaning what was the home like that I grew up in? Did we fight a lot or was it a place of peace? Were we kind to one another? Did we argue, make fun? Was it toxic? So on and so forth. So the atmosphere, the environment that you grew up in plays a lot into the behavior that we become, but there's also this just genetic component to it too. Meaning, you can take a child whose parents have this bend towards rebellion, a bend towards trouble, and put them in the most loving, most caring, most positive environment. And there is a chance that child will still struggle with rebellion, trouble, and things of that nature. Even though they didn't even grow up with their biological parents. You could take them as an infant and put them in the most loving, caring home that's adopted them, but because part of this behavior pattern is in our atmosphere, but the other part is in our genetics. So we have biological explanations, we have environmental explanations for the struggles in our life. 
But I think we also need to look at the spiritual explanation for some of the struggles in our life. So if you got your Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, otherwise I'm going to have it up on the screen for you. I'm going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 6, but we're going to use a lot of different verses, different scriptures today as we have this conversation. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, honestly going to be a little bit weird. It's almost going to feel like a Christian sci-fi movie, you know what I'm saying? So we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. There is a spiritual realm that the Bible describes as unseen that you and I cannot see with our physical eyes. It's something that takes place in a spiritual realm that we, we don't have access to. There are snippets in the Bible, there's stories in the Bible, there's places in the Bible where God would allow someone in the natural see into the supernatural. Like God would for a moment let them see surrounded by heaven's army of angels. Sometimes Daniel chapter 10 is one of these kind of unique stories where he's able to see into that unseen realm and he sees a good angel fighting with a bad angel. And so there's this spiritual struggle that's going on that you and I can't see in the physical. It takes place in what scripture describes as the unseen world. Jesus, in John chapter 10, when he's talking about these evil rulers and these mighty powers, he's talking about Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever you want to call him. Jesus gives insight into what his goal is for you. It says the thief, Satan, the enemy, the devil, Lucifer, whatever you call him, same character. That evil authority, those mighty powers. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He has an agenda for your life, to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said there's good news. I have come that you may have life, and you can have life in the full. Jesus' death on the cross did not change Satan's purpose. His purpose in the garden with Adam and Eve was to kill, steal, and destroy. That same purpose is still alive today in December of 2020. Jesus' death on the cross did not change the enemy's purpose. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants you to die without becoming a Christian. He wants you to end your life without being a child of God and having that relationship with Jesus. But if he can't keep you from doing that, like, ha-ha, it's too late. I'm already a Christian. If he can't keep you from coming to know God, he doesn't want you and your life and your story to help anyone else get saved. He wants to keep you stuck in your pain, in your sin, in your past. He does not want your life to make a positive impact, so he wants to keep you stuck. He don't want you to be used by God to make a difference for the kingdom of God. So the word curse... It's kind of a loaded term, right? Like when you think curse, you kind of think about cartoons or maybe hocus pocus movies where you got the wicked witch that's got the black pointed hat, you know what I'm saying? The long nose, the wart, and the bubbly stew pot, and she's always, <laughs> she's always kind of stirring it like that. Just, did you ever notice? Did you ever notice that the secret potions for those curses always involve something from a cat? All you cat lovers, you just do that math, you know what I'm saying? Just go with that. But, but starting back in the garden with Adam and Eve, when God gave them this command, you can have all these trees, just don't eat the fruit of this tree. Starting there, we begin to see this idea of generational curses. That was introduced into the human race. 
thousands of years later when God would rescue Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And, and he would take them out and, and he would use Moses and he was giving them instructions and they had been slave for so long they didn't know how to be free people. They were free but they were still in bondage in their mind and in their emotions and, and God's training them and teaching them and giving them instruction and, on what it means to be free. There he, he kind of reintroduces this idea or reinforces this idea that your sin has impact on the generations that come. We're in Ephesians 6 but I'm going to go to Exodus 20 for just a second. And Exodus chapter 20 is probably, not to argue about it, but it could be argued one of the most um, famous set of laws in world history. It's the Ten Commandments. And he says this, and I want to jump about halfway through the Ten Commandments. Verse 4, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God now let me be clear he's not jealous of you he is jealous for you he wants your heart to belong to him and him alone I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other gods I lay the sins of the parents upon their children the entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me so there is impact upon the sin that I allow in my life. Verse 6, but, that's bad news, but I will lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So what are generational curses? Is it a sin? Is it a temptation? Is it a struggle? It's something that is handed from one generation to the next, and then to the next, and to the next. So in the natural, in psychology, we have a natural explanation for this. Oh, it's, it's the environment, it's the atmosphere that he grew up in the home. Or, or it's in their DNA, it's in the genes, right? Like father, like son. But I think there is a spiritual principle at work that I want to address and deal with today. Oh, my granddaddy was a drunk, my daddy was a drunk, so I guess I'll just be a drunk. My grandma was, she battled with anger and rage, and my mom battled with anger and rage, so I struggle with anger and rage. There are spiritual principles like generational blessings for a thousand generations, but also there are generational curses that are presented in the Ten Commandments that I think you and I need to be aware that they're there. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, I wanted to just grab that first sentence of the verse, but then you keep going and it ties in with what we're talking about. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. I find this verse very interesting. He's basically saying knowledge is power. You're destroyed because you don't have knowledge of what's going on spiritually. Your life is a mess because you don't want to know spiritually what's going on. And when you chase after sin, when you don't confront the struggles in your life, when you don't deal with your issues, it will impact your children. Let me clarify one more thing. There is a difference between generational curses and generational consequences. They're two different things. A generational curse, I will struggle with my father's struggle. A generational consequence, I don't necessarily pay for my father's sin. I'm not guilty for his sin. Now, there will be impact. 
There will be consequences that come along with that, but I'm not guilty for the sin that my father committed. The Bible references it several times. Exodus 30, verse 7, if you're an extra note taker. Deuteronomy 24, 16. The one that I think explains it most is Ezekiel 18. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sin? Like Jesus was confronted with this. There was a man blind one time, and this was so ingrained in their doctrine. They're like, Jesus, who sinned? Is his mom or his dad? Like, no, this happened here so the glory of God could be made known in this moment, right? So doesn't the child pay for the parent's sin? No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. Verse 20, the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for their parents' sins, and the parent will not be punished for their child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. So what's the difference? God judged my father based upon his life, his works, his salvation, and he deals with me based upon my own salvation and merit. Okay, so we tend to focus on the consequential side of that. Like, I won't pay for my father's sins. I won't pay for my mother's sins. That's God's business with them, okay? But let me put another spin on that for just a second to clarify something. I will not, I cannot, I won't get into heaven because of my father's salvation. I must have my own life-giving, life-changing, faith-believing relationship with Jesus Christ if I am going to be entered into eternity with him. I have to have my own relationship with Jesus for the promise of salvation to be mine. Just because my daddy was saved doesn't mean I'm saved. Just because my mama was saved doesn't mean I'm getting into heaven. So a generational curse. I may struggle with my father's struggle. Generational consequence would be that I would pay for my father's sin, and that's not how this works. You are judged based upon your own merit and what you did with Jesus. Now, nowhere in Scripture is there a list of generational curses. So where are you getting generational curses? No, no, like in Exodus, that's not listed. He just talks about what happens if you don't deal with your sin and deal with your struggle. Paul, in the, in, in the New Testament, doesn't anywhere say, okay, well, here's a list of, of generational curses. You got lust and you got pornography. He doesn't, he doesn't, nowhere in Scripture are they listed out. They're just a thing. And I think people are destroyed. People perish for a lack of knowledge. So my guess, most of you by now as I'm talking about this, even if this is new information to you, most of you probably have a good idea of what that struggle is in your family, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, right? There's other of you that you may be aware of this or whatever, but you look back at your family lineage and, and there's not one. And if that's you, then you need to be thankful for a grandparent or a great-grandparent or maybe your parents that said, listen, this is going to stop with me. I'm going to be the one to take a stand and say, I'm not going to let my children and my grandchildren struggle through these generational curses. So what do I do? What do I do? If there has been a spiritual struggle that has battled our family for generations, and I don't want to hand that on to my children. The first thing is, take a note, you can write this down, recognize the curse. Yes, there is psychology at play. Yes, there is environmental issues to be concerned. Like, did you grow up in a home where there's a lot of yelling or, you know, a lot of lust or whatever? Yes, there is environmental issues to be considered there's also partly genetic things to be considered but you cannot deny what paul talks about in ephesians 6 
We are waging a spiritual war. And spiritual warfare is weird and kooky. It's spooky. We don't want to talk about it in church. Oh, it's one of those churches. Okay. Okay? Yet I believe we are a generation that is losing a spiritual battle for a lack of knowledge. And we're not equipping those who come behind us. Because we won't talk about it because it's spooky and kooky. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Knowledge is power. We need to recognize there is a spiritual battle going on in an unseen world that we can't see with our natural eyes. It's taking place in the spiritual realm, and there's a spiritual principle that's at play here in your life. There is an enemy that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy you, and you need to recognize the curse so you can even deal with it. But recognize the curse is not shifting blame. It's not passing blame. It, it doesn't give me an ability to make excuses. Well, my granddaddy was a mean old cuss. My daddy's a mean old cuss, so I'm just going to be a mean old cuss. Can't help it. It's just the way I am. And that may be true in your genetics. That may be true in your physical wiring. That may be true in your gene. Some people may have the gene that bends towards addiction. Some people may have something in your wiring that bends towards direction. But it's not true of your spiritual wiring. Your spiritual wiring is laid out in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you've invited His Spirit to come in and make you new, you become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. Meaning, the greater power that's on the inside of you that God placed there when you gave your life to Him, that means as a believer, you have access to the same power that brought the dead body of Jesus out of that cold, darkened tomb, and it put resurrecting power in his life, he can do the same thing in your life. Come on, somebody ought to say amen. You have access to the life-changing, curse-reversing, bondage-breaking power of God. It's not automatic. Just because you've prayed the prayer doesn't mean it's automatic. You have to own it. You have to, by faith, step into it. Today I'm going to show you how to do that. You have to recognize there is a spiritual battle going on. There is an enemy of your soul that wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. And God has given you access to overcome that. So, one, you got to recognize there's something going on. If you live in denial, you are setting up your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children. You're setting them up for spiritual failure. Secondly, you got to recognize... The cure. Just drop the S, right? You gotta recognize the curse, and you gotta recognize the cure. The bad news. I believe there are generational curses that are handed from generation to generation. More bad news. There's an enemy that wants to keep you from getting saved. There's an enemy that wants to keep you from helping others get saved. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy what God has created for you to do. But the good news is Jesus has given you access to everything you need. Come on, somebody, say amen. Woo! Revival breaking out. Ephesians 6. This is that whole weird Christian sci-fi thing about you're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world and authority or against mighty powers in the dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, Paul's like, this is real. Whether you can see it or not, whether you can touch it or feel it or not, this is real. So what do I do? Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. I want to stand firm, don't you? 
I love the NLV. It says, because of this, because there's this battle going on in the unseen world, put on all the things God has given you to fight with. You can't pick and choose. You can't just take the ones you like and leave out the ones you don't like. You need to put on the full armor, all the things that God has for you. In Ephesians 6, 14, he says, stand your ground. Even when it's hard, stand your ground. I don't want to. Stand your ground. That enemy might be tough. He might come to kill, steal, and destroy. But God says, you stand your ground. Don't quit. Don't retreat. Don't give up. You stand your ground. And then he says this. He says, put on the belt of truth. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And then he says, and put on the body armor that's God's righteousness. If you've read this in older translations, maybe you studied this as a kid. It's what we call the breastplate of righteousness or the chestplate of righteousness, right? Let me tell you what that means. Let me put that in the simple for you. God's ways work every time. If you live according to God's ways, well, what are God's ways? They are laid out for you in Scripture, like love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. God's ways work every time. When you live rightly, where we get the word righteous, when you live righteously, when you live according to God's ways for your life, it is a protection for your life. It's a protection for your emotions. It's a protection for your spirit. God's ways work every time. Put God's principles to work in your life and watch them protect you. And the breastplate of righteousness was designed to protect your heart. And when you put God's ways at work in your life, it will protect you. Verse 15, for shoes. Put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Preparation begins with the foundation. And to be fully prepared, you have to have a strong foundation. And he tells you what the foundation, the thing you stand firm on is the gospel. The thing you stand firm on is the good news about Jesus Christ. How he's come that you can have life and have it to the abundance. The good news is he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto him. The good news about Jesus, even if this battle doesn't go the way I want it to, I know that there's an eternity in heaven with him. I'm talking too fast. I'm going to slow down. The foundation of your warfare, the foundation of your life is to be placed on the gospel that's Jesus Christ. The good news is the only thing that can bring you true peace in a pandemic. But what about puppies? They don't sleep very good. There's no peace with puppies, right? It's just Jesus. Put the foundation of the gospel the foundation of your life, it's Jesus. Verse 16, in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith and stop the fiery arrows. Some translations call them the fiery darts of the devil. So when this was written, ancient warfare used fiery darts and they were launched in great number at the beginning of an attack. And the idea was not only to injure the enemy, take the ones out that you could while they were off out there at a distance, but you shoot all these fiery arrows from all sides with massive numbers to confuse and panic the enemy. It messed with their mind. And even though you had this shield to stop the fiery arrows of the fiery darts, right? It was still intended to cause panic because the shield many times, not every time, but many times, especially from your poorer armies, those shields were made out of wood. 
Wood is flammable. That's why the darts were firing, is so that I might protect myself, but now I've got a fire started on the other side of this wooden shield, and it's going to catch fire. And so they would release their shield, now leaving my whole body susceptible to more attacks. Designed to mess with your head. Thoughts, feelings, imagination, fears, and lies. All of these are hurled at you by Satan as fiery doubts. And the only thing that turns them back is faith. Even though I don't know how this battle ends, I know how the whole story ends. Even though I don't know how this day ends, I know how the end of days ends, right? I still believe God is for me and God is with me, even though I'm being pummeled right now by fiery darts. It's that shield of faith. Come on, somebody say amen. Verse 17, put on the salvation, put on salvation as your helmet. That protects your mind, protects your head. Even if this doesn't go the way I want it to, I still know I'm saved. I mean, seriously, lost my dad 17 years ago. There was a peace in knowing I would see him again someday. And so there's just something about putting on salvation that regardless of how this story plays out, how this battle, how this struggle, how this plays out, there is peace. The salvation, the helmet was put in place to protect you from discouragement. And then he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. The Bible. It's what you have. That is the only offensive weapon, by the way, in all this list. Everything else was for protection. It was for defense. The Word of God, the sword, that's the only offensive weapon you had. He doesn't go on and say, take up the AK. He doesn't say, and then stick a pocket knife down in your boot that nobody will know that's there. And then get you a bow and arrow and strap it on your back. He, he gives you one offensive weapon. That is the word of God. Let me show you a practical way of how this worked out in Scripture. Before Jesus began his public ministry, he went into the wilderness for 40 days, and he prayed and he fasted. The gospel tell us while he was there for those 40 days, Satan, the devil, the enemy, you get what I'm saying, right? The one that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, he came to kill, steal, and destroy Jesus' mission. And in those 40 days, Lucifer, Satan, devil, he tried to tempt him. And every time Jesus was tempted, he used the word of God. He used the sword, not a physical sword, but he used the spiritual sword. And the, the, Satan would come tempt him and he'd go, Satan, it is written. And then he would quote the Bible. Satan, it is written. And then he would use a Bible verse. Satan, it is written. He used the offensive weapon of the word of God. You need to recognize the cure. God's ways work every time. God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And then there's God's people. There's the church. You know, when you, when you walk through all this, you're like, okay, we well, got the helmet, you got the shoes, you got the breastplate. What about the back? What you got on the back? There's nothing. Two reasons. Number one, he began that by saying, stand firm. I don't fight by running away. I can't stay in the fight if I quit. Come on, somebody. I can't stay in the fight if I give up. So we are designed as Christians to stand firm and fight forward. But what about the back? Because I'm going to surround myself with some prayer warriors. I'm going to surround myself with some faith warriors. I'm going to surround myself with a small group of people that are going to lock arms and lock faith with me. That's who's going to protect my backside while my front side is kicking the enemy in the teeth. Okay? So you got to recognize the 
here. Number three, reaffirm the truth. So to begin that conversation about the salvation helmet and breastplate and all that, remember I talked about the belt of truth and I said I'd come back to it? Well, I'm back to it, okay? And the belt of truth, I mean, they would wear actual clothing or garments underneath that breastplate or whatever, but the belt of truth is kind of what held their britches up. I mean, it's what kept everything in place. It's what tightened everything around so I wasn't loose and baggy and get caught on this or that. The, that, that belt of truth is what brings it all together. And Jesus said this when he was talking to his followers. John 8, 32, he said, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The first half of that sentence is just as important as the second half. Now, we quote that second part, Brother, the truth is going to set you free. Hallelujah, the truth is going to set you free. Well, not if you don't know it, it ain't. You got to know the truth, and if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. But only if you know it. Only if you have it in you. Only if it is constantly reaffirmed in your mind and in your heart what the truth is. So how do I do that? Speak life. Careful with what you say. Proverbs 18, 21, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or they're fruit. You choose. You no longer have to say, well, my old grandpappy was a mean old snake. My daddy was a mean old snake, so yes, I'll be a mean old snake. No, I have to declare by faith and with my words a new truth that says anyone who belongs to Christ can become a new person, amen? That old life is gone. I don't have to be what my grandpappy was. There is a new life that has begun. That's the truth. Proverbs 23, 7 says it all begins with your heart. For he thinks in his heart, so he is. Listen, if I am going to change my destiny, I have got to change my dialogue. I'm going to say that so y'all can amen a little better because I really thought that was pretty good. If I am going to change my destiny, I have to change my dialogue. Listen, this isn't just a message about positive confession. But there's something to be said in James chapter 3. He says, if you can tame your tongue, you can change your world. And you won't change your tongue until you change your heart. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. The only thing that will set your heart free is to know the truth, proclaim the truth, speak the truth, hashtag speak life. I might have some generational curses I'm battling, but God has given me access to a resurrection power to overcome that. Amen? So you got to recognize the curse. you got to recognize the cure. you got to reaffirm the truth. And number four, respond with obedience. And this has been fun up to this point because it's real easy to amen. But now we got to work. Respond with obedience. So back in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And this is how God said you keep the curse from coming on you and your kids and your kids' kids and so on and so forth. He says you just walk in obedience. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. Their entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Even third and fourth generations, like my sin, the things I allow into my life, the things your daddy allowed into his life, can impact the third and fourth generation. But I lavish unfailing love for a 
thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I might know my great grandkids, but I ain't going to know that thousand generation down there. But I have a chance to set them on a course and a path to experience God's unfailing love and the blessings from God. Amen? So disobedience opens the door for generational curses. But obedience opens the door to God's blessing for a thousand generations. Someone has to stand up and say, it ends with me. Someone has to be willing to do the tough stuff and stop the curse. Y'all want to hear a Daisy story this morning? Good, you're going to anyway. So Daisy um, is where my mom and my daddy grew up. And I spent a lot of summers there. My grandfather, who is my dad's dad, is 91 years old. He still lives down at Daisy. My mom lives down there, too. She lives on the Kellogg Ranch. Um, but he's 91. Last week, when we were down there for Thanksgiving, he was driving the tractor all day long. Load. I mean, he just he does the wildest things. Okay? Um, and so you'll hear me talk a lot about Daisy. His name, my grandfather's name is actually Bill Kellogg, and I'm going to, you've got to stay with me here because I'm going to talk about three different Kelloggs, and their names kind of get wonky. So my grandfather, his name is Bill Kellogg. Well, actually, his name is George William, but you know you can take William. A lot of guys will be named William, but they'll shorten it for, for Bill, okay? Like Matthew, they shorten to Matt or whatever. William, I don't know why they, but they do, you know. And so his name is George William Kellogg, and the George part, he's actually named after his grandfather, George Kellogg. And George Kellogg, or what he called Grandpa Kellogg, was a delivery driver in Wilburton, Oklahoma. Now, I want to pause for just a second and tap with all of my 80s and 90s kids that grew up that really are cool and got extra swag. You know what I'm saying? Remember, like, in the 80s and 90s when you'd be watching TV and this commercial would come up and it would be something really, really, really cool that you couldn't go buy at the Kmart? Or TGNY, I'm getting real old school, right? Okay, you could only buy it from that TV commercial, and it was really cool, and you wanted it. And at the end of that commercial, with about five seconds left, this guy would come on with this real slappy voice, like called out. What he heard? He'd say a bunch of stuff you can't even quote back to. You. Remember that, the real fast-talking commercial guy? Remember that? Okay. So sometimes in that, you would even see it pop up on this kind of orange-looking screen at the bottom. It would say, "You can pay with COD." All right? Well, COD is not a big thing we use anymore, but it actually stands for cash on delivery. Now, back in the day, you would order something. They trusted you enough that when you showed up, you would pay whoever delivered it with cash on delivery. Now, because of credit cards and debit cards and electronic banking and all that, you pay for something before it shows up. But back in the day, you could pay for things with COD. Well, 120 years ago, when Grandpa Kellogg, George Kellogg, was a delivery driver, he, he had his mules and he had his wagon and he would go to the train depot and he was the modern, I mean, he was the version then of a UPS driver, right? They'd load him down and he would go make all these deliveries and they would pay him COD. Anybody remember the movie where the red fern grows? Remember that movie? When Billy gets his dogs, he goes to the train station, he gets his dogs, he has to pay the train guy. That's COD, cash on delivery. And so Grandpa Kellogg, he would take all these packages in his wagon and he would go deliver this one and he would collect the money. And then he'd go deliver that one, and he would collect the money. And then he would take the money back to the train station. Somehow, the train guy would get the money back to Sears and Roebuck or JCPenney or whoever they ordered the stuff from. Well, the problem was, uh, Grandpa Kellogg didn't do a real good job of getting all the money back. 
Matter of fact, there were saloons in Wilburton that, that kind of became a thing. So my great-grandfather, he's a guy named Guy Kellogg. That's confusing, right? So you got George Kellogg, you got Guy Kellogg, who's my great-grandfather, and then you've got my grandfather, who's Bill Kellogg. Guy Kellogg, you can see he got called off to go to World War I. You see him, dapper-looking fellow up there, right? You can tell where I get my good looks. He got called off to go to World War I. He was a mule skinner in the war. And before he left, he moved his mom and dad to Daisy. And they had just enough money to buy a little old rundown store. I could take you out in the middle of a pasture. It's not there, but I could take you out in the pasture where that old store used to be. And he set his mom and daddy up in that store. And then he went off and he fought in World War I. And when he came back, the little store was almost broke. And his parents were broke. And it was not good. Now, I love to hear my grandpa, Bill Kellogg, I love to hear him tell stories about growing up in Daisy. Matter of fact, oh, a couple of months ago, I, I got out a piece of paper and I said, okay, because Daisy right now is a post office and a store that's a gas station, but you can get a gallon of milk if you need. But there's this pasture there where the school used to be. It was a one-room schoolhouse, and we used to have a livery. There was a restaurant. There was a hotel. I mean, it was just kind of like an old western town. Somewhere there's a picture of, like, all these things. And so I've got this map that he kind of drew for me. There was this and this and this. And I love, I love to hear stories about what it was like, was like growing up as a kid at Daisy. And he will talk about his dad, and, and he would say this. My daddy said, if I ever catch you boys drinking, it'll be the end for you. And my pop, that's what I call him, my grandpa, he'll go, and I believed him. Because Guy Kellogg, my great-grandfather, grew up in the home of an alcoholic. And Grandpa Guy Kellogg knew there were generational curses that were on the family. Guy Kellogg knew it was up to him to be the one to break the cycle. Guy Kellogg went on to be a successful businessman. There was a picture popped up there a minute ago of the store. It's still there. Store's not open. We were, we were a Philip 66 family. He, had a, he sold Philip 66 gasoline. You go and get you Coke. And back in the 1920s, they had all the dry goods. Guy worked hard, bought a lot of cattle, bought land when it could come available. He raised three hard-working boys that all three became successful. And even a couple of his descendants, like myself, I'm not the only one that have gone into ministry. Some of them are superintendent of schools. Some of them are principals. Some of them are engineers. Some of them are firemen. All because Guy Kellogg said, I will be the one the curse stops with me. I'm not going to let this go on to my boys and to my grandkids. Because he was willing to put on the breastplate of righteousness because he was willing to live rightly and teach his boys how to live rightly and respond in obedience. It's not easy. Listen to me. Depression is not a sin. But it's a struggle you don't want to hand on to your children. Your divorce doesn't, doesn't mean it's a sin. 
There's a lot of pain that you don't want your children to go through that loneliness and the heartache that goes along with that. You don't want to hand that on to your kids. Lust, it's a struggle. You don't want to hand that down. And here's what I've, here's what I've discovered. Many times the next generation will take it further than the last. Granddaddy might have struggled with lust, but dad had an affair. Pornography, anger, rage, addiction. Someone has to be the one that says, it's going to end with me. I'm going to be the one to stand firm. I'm going to be the one to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm going to be the one that's willing to do the hard stuff and respond with obedience and stop the cycle. Are you willing to be the one to take a stand and with God's help and with his power you have access to, be the one to say, it ends with me. And I know this is a bit unusual. I told you this was an outlier sermon. But we also live in unusual times. And as I... I prayed over this and, and toiled over this. And honestly, this, when I first thought about this series about the blessing, I knew I wanted to go here. And, and, I, and when I first thought about doing this, I thought, you know what? I just want to do something unique where we take time for you to come and we lay hands and pray for you. But these are unusual times because of COVID and, and we couldn't figure out how to do that with social distancing. Like, come out of it, you know, and I'm like, I don't ever touch you or whatever. I, I don't know. These are unusual times that we live in. But I still want to have this moment where you take that stand, where you make the choice. I'm going to be the one. And most likely, you know what the generational curse that resides upon your family. I've got them on my mama's side, and I've got them on my daddy's side. And Jerry and I are doing everything we can to be the ones to take the stand and say, we're not going to hand that to our kids. We are going to set our kids and their kids up for success spiritually. But you've got to be willing to be the one that will take the stand for your kids and stand for your family. So I know this is unusual, and if you're a guest with us, we don't do this every Sunday, but I just feel like there's a lot of power on this. There's a lot of power in this moment. So I'm going to ask you, you're not going to come down front or whatever, but if you know that you need to be the one to stand in the gap for your family, you need to be the one that the cycle stops, the curse stops with you, I'm going to ask wherever you're at. I want to pray for you, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Like, I'm going to say a few words and let you pray, and I'm going to say a few words because I believe there's something powerful in this, but you have to be willing to take the stand. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do all across this room. And I'm going to tell you something. And if I was down there, if I was sitting there, I would be the first one to stand up because I know there are things in my life that I need spiritual help to break. So if that's you, I'm just going to ask you. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but I want you to stand so we can do this together all across this room. No shame if you do, no shame if you don't. You don't want to see. Here's what I want to do. We're going to pray this together. So I just, I want you to repeat after me and I want you to pray it like you mean it. Come on, pray it so they can hear you today. All right? Are you ready? Say this with me. Say, Father God. Come on, say it like you mean it. Father God, I come before you in the name and the power of Jesus. And right now I ask you to break every family curse break every generational curse off of my life. I plead the blood of Jesus over my mind, over my spirit, over my emotions, over my life, over my family. I ask you to break every bondage 
Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.